Well, if you're joining us for the first time today, uh, in our Sunday school, we, we've been going through the confession since I came here several years ago, and we are now in chapter 22 of the Confession of Faith, which is of religious worship and the Sabbath day. Last week, we largely concluded what the confession has to say about prayer in paragraph 4, particularly as it per, uh, pertains to whom we are to pray for, or rather, for whom we are to pray for, and for whom we are not to pray for. And we saw that while the confession is doing many things in that paragraph, one of the main things it's doing is really engaging with polemic, uh, in polemic with Rome, specifically on the issue of praying for the dead who are in purgatory, as they suppose. After we considered that, we moved on really only just to read paragraph 5, um, which I don't think we'll even read today. Um, we, we considered the fact um, that the confession is really starting to move away, or maybe not so much move away, but deal specifically with what we call public worship. Um, it deals with religious worship in several respects, but when it's talking about religious worship, it's not just referring to public worship. In fact, I would say it also considers uh, the worship of the individual and family worship as all falling under the category, the broader category of public worship, or I'm sorry, religious worship. In fact, if you have your confession of faith, um, if you look at paragraph six, it kind of puts all of those three under religious worship. It says, neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed, but God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth, as in private families daily and in secret, each one by himself, so more solemnly in public assemblies, which are not uh, carelessly nor willfully to be neglected or forsaken when God by his worship, uh, word or providence is um, called thereunto. So all those things are, uh, they kind of fall under the larger category of religious worship, um, which is interesting because that also means our private worship and even our family worship is also regulated by the Word of God. Um, we'll give some examples for that, but not necessarily just, uh, just the public assemblies uh, as well. Nevertheless, Paragraph 5 is really starting to deal more with the public worship of the gathered church. We saw that the confession there in paragraph 5 refers to parts of religious worship. Parts of religious worship. If you remember, I said that what the confession means by that is what we largely refer to today as elements of worship. The elements of worship. Those things which are commanded by God to be in his worship. If something is not commanded by him, it's not an element to worship, okay? Dramas and skits, and I'm not trying to just, you know, you know, bash Big Eva or anything today. Dramas and skits, are those commanded by the word of God? Then they're not an element, right? Burning candles and incense, is that commanded by the word of God? No. So it's not an element, Therefore, those are not properly parts or elements uh, of what we referred to. But then, notice something that I want to say very specifically. When we say those are not elements of worship, we should say they're not elements of New Testament worship. 
right? They're not elements now of worship. There is no evidence that those are, evident, uh, that those are elements of worship under the new covenant. But such thing, some things, such as the burning of incense, they were elements of Old Testament worship, weren't they? Weren't they? Didn't the high priest burn incense, right? So let me ask you this, then. If that was instituted by God under the Old Covenant, why can't we do it today? What? That was the Old Covenant, this is the New? But God instituted both. Okay. Any other ideas? Well, there are several reasons why. And they kind of get at what I really want to talk about today um, before we dive specifically to look at the elements of worship. There are really some broader categories that will help us to kind of parse through them uh, and really to ask some questions legitimately about what is worship. I think if you look at paragraph five and all the things there, no one's going to have an issue that any, any of the things mentioned, such as singing, the, the sacraments, the Word of God, no one's going to have an issue with those things as elements of worship, right? However, there are going to be some places where we're going to have to ask, I don't know, should that really be done under the new covenant now? Can it be? And if so, what justification is there for that? And the categories that we're going to look at today uh, will really help us to kind of parse through that, and that's kind of what I want to talk about first. The first distinction or categories is the distinction, we've seen some of this already, we've kind of, I've kind of hit on this a lot, but it's the distinction between natural law and positive law. Natural law and positive law. And with that, that goes together with natural worship, which we've talked about a lot, and instituted worship. So you have natural law, positive law, natural worship or natural religion, the confession uses a phrase like that, and then instituted worship, okay? Those are connected but different things. They're very important to wrestle with if we're going to ask what exactly is an element of worship. As far as um, uh, the distinction between the two, um, there are many ways that, that we could uh, characterize them. Perhaps the best way is to say the, the distinction, first of all, between um, uh, natural worship and instituted worship is that instituted worship is first of all connected with the idea of positive law or a positive commandment. Now, positive law doesn't just mean like good as opposed to negative. Um, it has a much more specific meaning than that. Positive law is distinct from natural law insofar as natural law is true at all times and in all places and for all people. Whereas positive law is only true, or only enforced, we could say, for a certain time, maybe for a certain people, such as the Old Testament people uh, of Israel, um, or maybe just in a certain place, right? But they're not always enforced. They came somewhere along the line, or perhaps they were abrogated at a certain time. So, for example, stealing the prohibition against theft, is that positive or natural law? It's natural. It's always been wrong to steal in all places, among all people, 
right? And it will always be wrong to steal. It's part of natural law. Eating pork, is that positive or natural? It's positive, right? Before, uh, just as Abraham was not uh, circumcised, there was a time when he wasn't circumcised before the institution of God, um, he could have well eaten pork as well, right? Afterwards, not so much. Even now that those have been abrogated, we can as well now. And so you see with positive law, they're not always universal. There's some sense in which they can be universal. Uh, we won't get into that today. But in, in terms of thinking them always being enforced in all places and at all times, they're not universal. That's the difference between them. Well, when we speak of instituted worship as opposed to natural worship, we're speaking of positive law. Natural worship, as the confession speaks of it, relates to natural law. It is that worship of God which is revealed in nature. Instituted worship relates to positive law. They are connected. It's not as though uh, the, the twain shall never meet. In fact, perhaps the best way to say it um, is that instituted worship guides, it perfects, and it furthers natural worship. William Ames explains that instituted worship is the means ordained by the will of God to exercise and further natural worship, right? So we're all called to worship God by virtue of merely being creatures, and yet the instituted revealed way of acceptably doing that is revealed in God's positive institution as we have in his word. The thing to note here, though, is that instituted worship is governed by positive law. And so the reason why we don't burn incense, even though they did so under the Old Testament, is that they had a positive commandment to do so, and we don't, right? There's nothing in the New Testament. Um, the, the closest you could maybe get is to reach into Revelation, and you're like, well, the saints there, their prayers is incense, and it's like, yeah, no, that's not going to really cut it. There's, there's really no positive uh, institution. There's no explicit, implicit commandment. There's no example. Furthermore, their positive commandments and instituted worship have been abrogated. And so none of the elements of their worship, if it's not either natural in some way or further positively instituted, none of those things carry over to New Testament worship because it's not God's will that they do so. Simply put, as we ask ourselves, what is an element of worship? It's not simply good enough to point to the Old Testament and say, well, they did it back then, therefore we can do it today, because you have to have a positive command if you are going to do it. Now, if you have your confession of faith with you, look at paragraph 7 of chapter 22, and we kind of see all these things together natural, positive, and the fact that positive can change in various elements. Uh, it's speaking of the Sabbath. Look at paragraph 7. As it is the law of nature that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God, so by his word in a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages. Now, that right there is why I said sometimes positive can be universal in a sense of binding all men and in all ages, but it's still positive in that it can change. Okay, that's just, but keep that in mind. 
binding all men in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day and seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. So notice several things there. First, it makes a distinction between the law of nature and positive law, or as it calls it, a a positive moral commandment. That which is from nature or natural law is, in general, a proportion of time be set apart to worship God. That's just common sense from the light of nature. You just naturally um, derive that by the fact that you see there is a God who deserves worship. It makes sense that you set aside a time to do it. Um, And that's why we see men do that in all kinds of corrupted ways throughout the world. They set aside a time to do that. There's a specific day. Um, I think if you're a Muslim, I think they go to mosque on Friday, I think. Um, there's, There's just a common sense thing that you set aside certain times, right? There is, however, a positively instituted aspect of this, and that is the specific day on which we carry out that aspect of natural worship, namely the setting aside of time to worship God. God instituted positively in creation, and afterwards more explicitly in the law, that the Sabbath day be kept on the last day of the week, right? namely Saturday. But notice the confession also says that after the resurrection of Christ, there is still a positive element, but it's changed. So there's still a day that has been specified, but the specific day has now changed. It says that the day, quote, from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. So the previous positive institution that we carry out the, the natural worship of setting aside time, the previous institution, did that be on Saturday? Well, it was positive. And since it's been abrogated, and now the, the Lord's Day has been instituted, that's the day that we carry out that natural aspect of worship. All that to say, just because something is done under the Old Covenant, it does not mean it is acceptable today. If it was part of the Old Testament instituted worship, that was all abrogated. (laughs) That all came to an end. And just to point to that and say, well, see, this is why we can do that, that's not good enough. In fact, this was a big uh, point of contention between the Reformers and Rome. Um, The the Roman church justified all their extravagances in their mass, and a lot of it they pointed back, specifically the burning of incense, um, the carrying of censers, which priests do today in the the procession into the mass, I think. Um, They would justify that from the Old Testament, but the Reformers would say, no, that's been abrogated, and you have to justify it, worship, is governed by positive law, not just something that's been abrogated or merely natural law, okay? Now, just so you know, this was actually probably one of the main arguments of the early Baptists for why they did not administer baptism to infants. They had no positive institution by God to do so. The Baptists hit on this all the time. Abraham had a positive command from God to circumcise his sons. Circumcision was positive law, not natural. 
right? Would you say circumcision was positive or natural? It's positive. If it was natural, it would still be required by God today, but it was positive, right? He had a positive command to also circumcise his sons. We have no such law, nor do we have examples in the new covenant. And so you can, the the Baptists were not satisfied by saying, well, under the old covenant, they did this. It's like, that's a moot point. That doesn't matter. You can point to the Old Testament. You can point to Israel until you're blue in the face. Worship today under the new covenant is instituted by positive law, right? In fact, if you want, you can read this more fully later. But if you have a confession of faith that has the appendix on the end of it, not all of them have that, um, but it was originally published. I forget who wrote this. I don't know that we exactly know the person who wrote this. Maybe it was Nehemiah Cox. I'm not entirely sure, right? But he mentions this exact argument because it was so common. It says, As for those of our Christian brethren who do ground their arguments for infants' baptism upon a presumed federal holiness or church membership, we conceive that they are deficient in this, that albeit this covenant holiness and membership should be as is supposed, even if we were to grant that, they're basically saying, yet no command for infant baptism does immediately and directly result from such a quality or relation. So they're saying it it doesn't even matter if you say that you have federal holiness. If you don't have something that institutes it positively, you still can't do it, right? It's actually a very good argument. It continues, all instituted worship receives its sanction from the precept or the command. That's how you have a legitimate reason for what you're doing in instituted worship. It comes from the precept of God, it says, and, and is to be uh, thereby governed in all necessary circumstances thereof. So all that to say, um, positive instituted worship is what governs our worship today. And as we, as we look and say, okay, what are legitimate elements of worship that we can do today? We want to be a Reformed church, right? Um, what qualifies for that? You've got to look for positive institutions or somehow that it's grounded in natural worship, okay? Now, let me give you a test case. I'll try to make you guys think through some of this. I actually had to think through some of this uh, with Pastor Jason this last week. Um, there are still times when you can appeal to Old Testament worship, not primarily, but as further confirmation of a New Testament practice, if it is primarily substantiated by instituted positive command, or it's more connected to natural worship itself, okay? Now, when the minister gives the benediction at the end of the service, should he raise his hands or not? What do you think? Now, let me say this. What's the first example that comes to your mind of a minister raising his hands when he gives a benediction? What? The Aaronic blessing, which is part of the Old Covenant instituted worship, right? Now, I think I have legitimate room to raise my hands in blessing as they face the congregation. When I talked to Pastor Jason, at first he was like, I don't really do it at this time because I'm not sure I have a a positive institution. Um, 
We talked, though, and I think I, think I, I persuaded him. We'll have to see. There's several reasons why we can say, why I think there's legitimate uh, reason why a minister um, can, can face his hands towards the congregation um, when he gives the benediction. First, the raising of hands in general in prayer, and especially, especially towards God to whom you are praying, or towards the one you are praying for, is actually more of a natural gesture that is kind of just part of the natural nature of worship and prayer in general. It's something very fitting that as you are praying to God, which is simply part of natural worship, you kind of raise your hands to him. Or Sometimes in the scripture you see that when people are about to speak to a group, they raise their hands when they're to do so. So Paul, when he's giving his defense, um, one of his several defenses, it says, and Paul stretched out his hands and then began to give his defense. It's kind of just something natural we do when we are talking to someone uh, or talking to a group of people. It is true that Aaron did it. However, the Reformed would argue that it's not particular to Aaron or particular to the Levitical priesthood in general, but rather that God's ministers in all ages pray for and bless God's people. For example, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And he's not of the Levitical priesthood, but he's a priest, he's a minister, and it's part of your job to bless, right? Or whenever you see um, very often uh, someone like a father blessing their children, it's very common that hands are involved in that in one way or another. We do, however, see um, some confirmation for this in the New Testament. I'd say specifically in two ways, explicitly. First, Paul mentions the raising of holy hands in prayer in 1 Timothy 2.8, which shows there's some kind of carryover between the practice of prayer and hands in the Old Testament. It mentions all the times in the Psalms, Psalm 88.9, every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you, right? And Paul is talking about prayer, and he says, you know, raising holy hands in prayer. Okay, well, we're seeing a connection there, right there. Furthermore, the raising of hands towards God is also kind of in and of itself connected with the idea of blessing. Now, we often think of blessing as the minister blessing the people, but remember, when we worship, we are blessing God as well. The, the psalmists use that language, and they often talk about raising their hands towards God as they bless him. Psalm 134.2, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. Psalm 63.4, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands, right? So blessing and hands is very common in the Old Testament, and Paul connects it with prayer in the New Testament as well. So there's an example at least, at least of when you're praying to God, right? I, I would say you could carry that over into other things, but... Um, at other times, blessing is not related to the lifting up of hands, but the laying on of hands. We're told in Mark 10, 16, that Christ took the little children into his arms and, quote, blessed them, laying his hands on them. We're called to lay hands on others as well in certain circumstances, and I think part of that is it's, it's kind of a, a blessing. Um, I think this is part of the reasons why when ministers are ordained, um, the other, other elders who are there lay their hands on them, 
Um, now, we've seen there's other significance of the laying on of hands. It, it's like a transfer of something. You see that with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts or, or the transfer of sin in the Old Testament. Um, but I think it's primarily a blessing for this new minister, right? And I think it's related to, to the laying on of hands. Furthermore, perhaps the most conclusive of all is that our Lord, before he ascended to heaven, blessed the disciples and raised his hands when he did so. Luke 24, 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. So blessing someone and lifting up your hands when you do so is not exclusively tied to the law of Moses. It's actually probably, what I would say, a fitting natural gesture that goes along with prayer, right? It's almost something we naturally do. Um, I know there's, it's almost like when sometimes I'm praying and I'll raise a hand. Sometimes uh, if you're singing, well, if you grew up, depending on the church you grew up, there's like all these different kinds of hands. Perhaps you've seen the meme, right? But even, there's even sometimes when I, I do that, and it's almost like a natural gesture, right? In that sense, then, I would connect it more to natural worship or natural religion, and therefore it has a carryover in the new covenant as well, okay? Though we don't, well, we do have some examples of instituted, not commandments, but, but at least examples with Paul and with Christ as well. So all that to say, it's not as easy as just saying, well, you can never appeal to the Old Testament, right? There may be times when you find confirmation for a practice, but it has to be substantiated by something more than that. And it has to go beyond that positive institution, either connected to natural worship in some way or a positive command or example in the new covenant, okay? Any questions before we move on? Well, it's explicitly with Aaron. So in the Aaronic blessing, number six, uh, it says, and it doesn't say hands, and Aaron shall lift his hand, it's singular. Um, and that's what he first said, just hadn't, and as you can see, we kind of had to comb through some stuff there to find some examples. Um, and he said, yeah, I'll have to think about it. He's like, I don't really, he's like, I know Paul mentions it, you know, in First Timothy, and I know there's Aaron, but that's the old covenant. Um, but then we talked more uh, and saw some stuff, and they're, they're, the Reformed, I think, make a good argument for that historically, that it's, there's a place for that, right? So, any other questions? Okay. That's the distinction between natural and instituted worship, natural and positive law. Let's now consider and think uh, more thoroughly about the distinction between an element or a part of worship, and its circumstances. An element and its circumstances. As I've said before, an element of worship is a positively instituted act of worship. A circumstance, typically, is something that pertains to the act, but is not essential to it, okay? I guess if we wanted to be really picky, and sometimes you read older writers talk about this, there are essential circumstances and non-essential circumstances. We won't get into that. We'll just say for now, typically, circumstances are um, uh, certain attending factors of an act of worship 
but they're not essential to it, okay? Let me give you some examples. Baptism. Is immersion in water essential to that element, or is it a circumstance? It's essential, right? We're all good Baptists here. It's essential to, to baptism, so much so that even our confession says it's necessary for the due administration, the implication being if you were not immersed, you were not baptized, so essential it is, right? Now, immersion in salt water or fresh water, element or circumstance? Was anyone here baptized in salt water? I was baptized in Huntington Beach. I told a youth minister, I said, throw me down hard. (laughs) Um, Okay, it's a circumstance. There's no commandment about the salinity level of the waters, right? There's nothing about the temperature of the water. There's nothing about whether it's running water like in a river or maybe pooled somewhere, as you might find in Jerusalem. There were a lot of mit- uh, not mitzvahs, mikvahs, which were kind of like these baths in their home. That's not running, right? But it's pooled. But there's no distinction about that. All those things um, pertain to various acts, uh, aspects of an act of worship, but they're not essential to it, okay? That's essentially the difference between an element and a circumstance. Now, let me ask you this. If the Word of God has nothing really to say about the circumstances of worship, does that mean we can do whatever we want in them? No. Why not? The Word of God didn't say anything. In water boots? Water balloons. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. I'm, I guarantee you that's been done somewhere, but yeah. Do all things with order? Okay. Yeah, you guys are kind of getting at some of this, I think. Um, yeah, that's, that's really good. I thought I was going to totally stump you guys. Um, I have such a high view of you guys. Uh, just kidding. Um, actually, circumstances... Though they're not essential to certain acts of worship, they still are governed by two things. We could say three as well if we wanted to. And the third one you've already alluded to, which is the general rules and precepts of the Word of God, right? So we may not have an order of service given to us in the New Testament, but we do have some general ground rules, which we'll look at, namely that things be done decently and in order, right? or that they be done reverently. So even though you don't have a specific command, those broader general rules still apply. The other two things, though, that govern that are namely the light of nature, confession says, and Christian prudence. The light of nature and Christian prudence. It says this in chapter 1, paragraph 6. Turn with me there real quick. Very important, very important paragraph. Chapter 1, paragraph 6, kind of midway. There are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence 
according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. So notice that last one that you mentioned there. Um, and also, we should also say, when we talk about the light of nature, um, it's not a co-equal authority with Scripture. It's always subordinated to it, and we see that in the fact of the fact that that last clause, always according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed, right? But namely, the light of nature and Christian prudence. Now here, we have to unpack the concept of the light of nature a little bit, if we're going to understand what it means, um, because simply put, the light of nature is a really broad category. It encompasses several different things. They're all related, um, but it's, it's not a narrow concept, we'll say that. Um, and when it's using this, it's, it's, it's speaking in a very specific term, okay? First, what can we say about the light of nature? When you read older theologians um, or even philosophers, the term the light of nature or sometimes natural light, it's really synonymous with reason, reason, human reason. Now, reason can be taken even itself in several senses, um, for example, um, well, hold on, we'll get there, I jumped ahead. Um, it can be taken as reason, sorry. In fact, sometimes they're often interchangeable, the light of nature and reason. So, for example, Turretin even speaks of the light of right reason, right? They often go together like that. Furthermore, you'll note when you read older theologians that when they talk about the use of reason, it's right reason. After the fall, reason is fallen. And so when they say we use right reason, it's never, or they use reason, it's assumed that we use right reason. You never use corrupted reason, right? In fact, in Latin, the term is recta ratio. It's actually a technical, philosophical, and theological term. Recta, recta ratio, right reason. It's the right use of reason, okay? Now, even here, reason can be taken several ways. First, it can be taken subjectively. Not subjectively in the whatever your truth is my truth, man, but in the subjective sense of the one who reasons or that which reasons, okay? Here it's talking about the faculty in the mind, the intellect, that which reasons, right? Subjectively is reason. It can be taken objectively for that which is reasoned or really just natural knowledge in general. Those things that we know and come to through the use of our faculty of reason. Okay? Both ways it can be taken. Turretin says, human reason is taken either subjectively for that faculty of the rational soul, so notice a faculty, by which man understands and judges between intelligible things presented to him. So it can refer to that, just your faculty, the mind that God has given you. Or, objectively, for the natural light both externally presented and internally impressed upon the mind, by which reason is disposed to the forming of certain conceptions and the eliciting of conclusions concerning God and, uh, and divine things. Now, several things to note. First, it's either subjective or objective, he says. It's either that which reasons or that which is reasoned. Then he breaks down the objective category into two more categories. First, internal versus external. Things that can be known through reason are either known internally or externally. 
Can you guys give me examples of those? Especially if we think about the natural knowledge of God. How do we know things about God internally? There's something written somewhere in our chest. The law of God is written on the heart, right? We can know, we know certain things about God because it's been internally impressed upon us. How do we know and see things about God uh, externally? The heavens declare the glory of God, creation and providence, right? In fact, our confession of faith in chapter 1, paragraph 1, kind of mentions both the internal and the external. It says, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God, da, 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 da. so there it uses the term light of nature really only to speak of internal and the works of creation and providence, those are the external. Historically, those would all fall under the light of nature, so I don't really take, I don't think the confession means a really uh, sharp contrast between the two there, right? But there's internal and external. You can know things uh, ex internally or externally, right? Things which can be known naturally. However, even more broadly than that, we can say our natural knowledge or the light of nature, is not just things about God that can be known. But really, even more broadly than that, it refers to all natural knowledge in general. Not just natural theology, but all natural knowledge. Arts, math, science. Um, all kinds of things that you can know naturally through reason. Sometimes theologians use the light of nature to refer to it that way. For example... In 1646, a group of London Presbyterian ministers penned what became a very famous treatise in defense of Presbyterianism called The Divine Right of Church Government. In it, they talk about the light of nature in this broader sense, and just listen to what they say. They say, quote, The Spirit of God and of Christ in the New Testament is pleased often to argue from the light of nature in condemning of sin, in commending and urging of duty. Okay, so they're saying in the New Testament, often the apostles will bring in the light of nature to, to enjoin the believers to their particular duties. Thus, in the case of praying or prophesying in the congregation in an unknown tongue, Paul strongly argues against it from the light of nature, they say. Now, some of you actually mentioned that passage, right? Did you know you were arguing, actually, in, in some ways, or maybe not mentioning it explicitly, but Paul argues from the light of nature. How? Well, look at what Paul says. If we look at 1 Corinthians 14, 7 through 11, he supports his arguments with truths from the art of music and the nature of human language. And those things don't fall under natural theology. Those are just, that's just natural knowledge in general, okay? Paul writes, If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if, you're, uh, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, 
how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So notice right there, Paul's actually doing the very thing we're trying to talk about. He's urging a certain practice in worship, namely that things be done in an orderly way, right? He goes on in verse 26, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Why? Verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And yet to argue against confusion, he points to confused music. If I were just to get right there and just, because, you know, just do whatever, just make a bunch of random noise, they'd be like, oh, you know this Billy Joel song? And you'd be like, I don't think I've ever heard that Billy Joel song before, right? Because it doesn't make sense. It's cacophonous. It's crazy. If I were to speak and just make up a bunch of different noises as a language, you would not understand me. Why? Because those things have order to them, right? The art of music has order. Language has order and design. And so from that, Paul says, so also should your worship services, right? So that's an example um, of pointing to the light of nature. Interestingly, I would say our confession also speaks of the light of nature in a similar way in the section about circumstances of worship. If you look there again, it's in paragraph 6 of chapter 1. Paragraph 6 of chapter 1. It says, there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of church common to human actions and societies. See that? Common to human actions and societies. If we were to consider those, those um, last examples of Paul, music, that's a human action, right? That's something humans do across the globe. Language. Those are human actions. They belong to human societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word. So some parts of our worship, those that are not elements, circumstances, they are common to all human societies and even actions. And these things are to be governed by the light of nature. So for example things common to human actions and societies. Can we use microphones in worship? Where does it say that in the Word of God? It doesn't. What is the element that is commanded in the Word of God? Preaching and teaching. Speaking publicly, right? Is it common in human societies, to use microphones in public gatherings when there's public speaking? Yeah, right? Even in the ancient world, they didn't have mic systems, but they built things using acoustics, right? Even then, there was this, uh, even then, ancient societies are trying to get the best sound they can for public gatherings. There's nothing wrong about it, as long as, I mean, we're not making this an element. It's not like it's, it's not like a golden microphone with a cross on it, okay? Then you're starting actually to turn a circumstance into an element, and you have to be careful about that. There's all ways in which you can, people say, well, we're not making it an element, it's just a circumstance. It's like, no, nah, okay, the tail's wagging the dog on that one, okay? Um, okay, 
Or consider this. We are to worship on the Lord's day. What time should we gather on the Lord's day then? Okay, so not in the middle of the night, probably not three in the morning, right? And maybe after they've had a little bit of breakfast and coffee and they're slightly coherent, okay? Now let me ask you this. Is that common to other public gatherings and human actions and societies? Yeah. There's not like typically board meetings at 3 a.m. or maybe I'm sure there's in the crazy world of business there is or something like that, right? Um, but typically, public gatherings, they happen in the daytime, and they start at a reasonable hour. I would say around 9 a.m. There's a reason why we speak of a 9 to 5. And there's a reason why most businesses open, maybe not most, but a, a good number of ones, they open between 8 and 10, partly because they're not awake before that and ready and, and otherwise, they don't have any customers because no one else is awake by them. It's not normal in human societies to, to be up by then, right? Similarly, those things should govern when we meet for church. Thomas Goodwin speaks about this uh, in my favorite book on congregationalism, better than John Owen. Sorry, I love John Owen. Thomas Goodwin is my favorite on congregationalism. The title is Of the Constitution, Right Order, and Government of the Churches of Christ. He says, So now for us, as to what hour of the day we should meet, about nine o'clock is the best. Considering the time of preparation before, and the weakness of many, and the due times of rest and the meals to come afterward, and that the church should, meet, uh, not, that the church should not meet in the afternoon presently, after meals is the best also for edification to prevent dullness or hurt by indigestion, right? For you guys who are visiting us today, welcome to Sovereign Joy. We have all kinds of dullness and indigestion because we meet at two or three, right? Um, he says, now to these hours, these times, as circumstances stand with us presently, we are determined not by an invariable institution, but by a general rule, let all be done for the most edifying, which falls out with us to be these times, which perhaps for another church would not. And so the determining of this hour is not wholly human, for men are bound to determine things by rules, yet not wholly or merely divine, as particularly pointing them out as by an institution, but divine in respect of a general rule, and also human in respect of the particular application, man's wisdom being left to consider these circumstances and so to apply these right rules. So if a church were to meet, like let's say there's to be a new church and they wanted to join the association, and we're like, brother, what, what time do you guys meet? And they say, we meet at the crack of dawn because David says, early will I seek you or something like that. And we can't figure out why we can't grow right? Or I don't know, something like that. Say, brother, you're not actually violating the word of God. But that is contrary to nature. It's contrary to the light of nature. God made humans to be awake in the daytime and asleep at night. That's part of nature, right? And you're kind of going against that. You're not sinning per se, 
but you're not necessarily acting wisely. So notice, circumstances are still governed by natural rules or general rules or prudence. Um, Okay, now the other thing the confession mentions that we should talk about here is not the light of nature, but Christian prudence. Christian prudence. Who can tell me, you, you smart people, the relationship between the light of nature and reason and Christian prudence or prudence? If you had lived in the 16th century, you would immediately, you would probably know the answer to that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. I had to learn all this. Um, prudence is right reason applied to action. That's the classic uh, Aristotelian definition of it. If you're a prudent person, you can use right reason to your actions. Certain actions are prudent. Some actions are not prudent. In the prudent ones, you have used right reason to judge all the factors, right? And so you acted prudently. In the other one, you didn't use right reason. So they, they are related. For example, although most public gatherings are in the daytime perhaps meeting between 8 to 10 a.m. in these churches. Yet there might be other circumstances when, while those are ideal times to meet, it is not prudent to meet in those times. For example, in times of persecution. Goodwin explains, now as our case stands, the daytime seems best for our edification by the ordinances because our spirits are more fresh in the day than in the night. But to them whose meeting in the day costs them their lives and the loss of all ordinances and everything, though the night was in other respects inconvenient, yet the better than not at all, right? In some ways, it's more prudent, though it's not ideal. It is, in a certain sense, contrary to nature, but you're also trying to stay alive, right? So in some sense, uh, that's governed as well. An example of this for us would be tornado warnings, or maybe after the snowpocalypse or something like that. There's ice on the roads. Texans don't go anywhere, right? We don't have tires for it. We don't have chains for it. It's probably not a good idea. And we, in that case, we would say, you know what? We're going to cancel Sunday worship this day or something, right? Because it's imprudent to do it, right? Um, okay, now with that, we'll stop there because we're, we're pushing the limits um, there are some things to clarify, as I said, especially with circumstances. You have to be careful, uh, and this gets to the idea of the simplicity of worship. You have to be careful that you don't abuse the category of elements and circumstances and really bring in something which you're making more of an element, but you're saying it's a circumstance, right? We'll look at some cases of that, but, but for now, um, that's it.